where the miracle of pregnancy meets the reality of your changing body, where taking care of our kids meets taking care of ourselves, and where the daily frustrations of feeding a family meet establishing lifelong healthy habits. This is The Messy Intersection. Hey everybody, welcome back to The Messy Intersection. I am your host, Diana, and it's been a bit. I have not published a new episode in a little while. Some personal stuff going on, namely people in my life getting COVID, not me. I did not get COVID. I'm actually now fully vaccinated, which is something I'm really, really grateful for, and I hope that is something that you are able to pursue as well. But I really just want to dive right into this interview with Clara because I am just so thankful for Clara's insight and I want to let it shine. Clara recorded this with me the week of the Atlanta spa shootings, and I know that she had put a lot of emotional energy into dealing with the response to that from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, uh, which is the professional organization for registered dietitians, which we will discuss a bit in the interview. And as you will also hear, she was also... (laughs) 38 weeks pregnant at the time of recording, which is no picnic, regardless of the emotional energy that you have or have not expended that week. And she did not have to sit with me and record this interview, but she did. And I am just really, really thankful for that. And we're going to dive right in. So my guest today is Clara Nosek. She is a registered dietitian nutritionist and self-proclaimed cool mom. She specializes in a weight-inclusive, non-diet approach to health and nutrition, and her mission is to facilitate reconnection with the body and empower through food freedom. And of course, this interview is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, and the views I express are my personal opinions and do not represent the views of my clients or employers. So basically, if you may be facing gestational diabetes yourself, as Clara was, do not take advice about it from me and Clara. Talk to your own doctor. Okay, let's hear from Clara. Hey, Clara, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Okay, so I am Clara. I'm a registered dietitian nutritionist. I am currently a stay-at-home mom with one on the way and slowly but hopefully surely making a positive impact on the world of dietetics. <laughs> I think you are, and we'll get to that in a second. But you mentioned that you're pregnant. How pregnant are you, Clara? <laughs> I am 38 weeks pregnant, and I'm ready to be not pregnant anymore. Yeah. For us. So in terms of making a positive difference in the world, I imagine you are talking a bit about your activist works, especially your work on Instagram. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So I realized that there was a lot that I didn't know about our accrediting body, the institution that I pay lots of money to every year (laughs) and just had no idea how any of it worked and realized that a lot of it is intentional. I felt like the academy really makes it hard to understand how it works. And so I have just been trying to, not only for my own clarity, but for the newer dietitians who are also trying to navigate this whole thing and am finding this community of, hey, yeah, I didn't know that either. <laughs> like, I guess we're all in the dark and I think that knowledge is power. And so hoping that shining light and learning more and uncovering all the stuff that 
isn't really talked about in our profession will help with transparency and understanding and really foster a community of dietitians that work together and are supportive as opposed to whatever dumpster fire that's happening right now. <laughs> oh my gosh. And just if anyone who's listening is not a dietitian, you are talking about the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, which is yes. the membership organization that dietitians may belong to. It's not a requirement, similar to how a doctor might be a, a member of the American Medical Association. And let's just say it, dietitians are largely thus far white women. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and the way that the Academy, would you say, caters to upholds white supremacy? Like, how would you put it in your... I would put it they coddle. I think after last year, there was a lot of forward-facing changes made to placate people asking for change. And I know that with just getting into this, I'm new to this game. There are people who have been doing this for 15, 20 years, trying to establish a platform for diversity and equity and inclusion, and have been met with gaslighting and being ignored and silenced. And they've just now started to really do stuff, but it's only the forward facing things, not so much the at like the institutional, the C-suite, the upper organizational aspect of changes that really would have lasting and meaningful impacts on the way dietetics operates in America, at least. And so that's all very like high level, but yeah. if we're not seeing change up top, are we really going to see change in terms of how the public is receiving the nutrition information and is the field of nutrition as a whole upholding some standards that are really not in the best interest of the entire population? Would you say that that's, am I getting it all correct at I all? So. I think so. I think if you look at where dietetics, what dietetics was when it first started versus what it is today. There are definitely things that have changed and things that have remained the same, but it's like being in an abusive relationship where we're being asked to focus on all the good things without acknowledging any mm -hmm. of the crap, yeah. even if the crap outweighs the good stuff. And so I think that it's toxic. It's like a really toxic environment to be in and to navigate because I, I feel like so many people go into dietetics because food is such a connection, like a connective power. And it's very easy to establish a rapport with people because food is so personal and you want to help people. You want to like make an impact. You want to guide them to whatever their goals are. And it's hard to do that when the information is lacking and or just flat out not inclusive enough. And you're asking like, hey, let's update this stuff. And there's resistance. There's this weird resistance to like making it better. It's like, you know, everyone's got that like Motorola Razor flip phone and you can have an iPhone, you can have an Android, you can have all these other things. And our, our crushing bodies no yeah. <laughs> we're just gonna get you like a case you gotta put your, you gotta put your razor in a case That's sometimes i feel like it's like what if we go back to the nokia that'll fix <laughs> it <laughs> you're like no one was complaining when we had the nokia so we should just go back to that and it's, it's a lot of like red tape it's a lot of just weird stuff 
it's just very all confusing. Like, so there's the academy, there's the accrediting body for schools, and then there's the accrediting body for licensure or board certification. They're all supposed to be independent of each other, but there's no clear distinction where one starts and one ends. And if, you know, you look at the academy's tax records, there's people from CDR, our credentialing body, who are being paid by the academy. There's people in Ascend who are also being paid by the academy. And so it's like, how separate is everything? And you can't ask those questions. And the people who are in it can't answer those questions. And it's just, there's no transparency. It's very confusing. It's very convoluted. And yeah. So for me personally, after a year of investing and just learning more about everything, it seems like this is just how it's meant to operate so that we don't ask questions because you don't even know what questions to ask. Yeah. Well, on that note, I think your Instagram account does a great job of inspiring the rest of us watching to ask those questions. But I just have to say, you do it with so much wit and humor and just like a pop culture relevancy that like, sometimes I'm I'm like, I don't know what she's referencing, (laughs) but it seems really witty. (laughs) And I just want to encourage anybody listening to check out your dietitian BFF on Instagram, because it is, you really have a talent. It is so funny because you're talking about these really important issues, doing it in a way that shines a light on on the stuff that's so important, but with so much wit and humor that we can't help but be like, yes, yes. And even like like I was saying before we started talking, um, sometimes me as a white person saying, I did not know that. I really appreciate her bringing it to my attention and I'm getting a little chuckle out of it as well. And it's just, it's a gift. You're a gift to the internet. Thank you. Yeah. I'm like Mary Poppins, right? That's yeah. yeah. sugar. Just like with this, like, you just you just show up and you're like, I am here to save the day, but don't I'm not staying too long. You don't get me forever. I'm <laughs> off. <laughs> Is that that um, yeah. Restrictions. Yeah. <laughs> um, but on that note, you are here today to talk about weight stigma in pregnancy. So uh, we've mm. established that you're pregnant. Let's talk about your experience of pregnancy in the body that you currently have. Go. Okay. I am. On paper, I think I'm obese. Yeah, I think on paper I'm obese. But I have always my whole life on paper, diagnostically, (laughs) as a clinician, diagnostically have lived in the overweight obese arena Mm -hmm. stages. (laughs) And I say it without hesitation because I feel like it's my shoe size is an eight. I wear a medium top. I don't think that I have, I don't think, I know, I know that I have the privilege of so, like my proximity to the acceptable small body, the thin, able-bodied person is that where I can shop at a regular store. I can sit on an airplane uninhibited, um restricted. So I think there are things that we attribute to those diagnostic markers that I don't have to deal with. And those are things that have not attributed to the stigma of having those diagnoses. I know that like even before I had my first child, when I was at the height of my healthy, quote unquote, healthy lifestyle, when I'm 
very diligently counting what I was eating, working out two, sometimes three times a day. I was still, I was at the peak of my physical fitness, if you will, but still diagnostically overweight. And my doctors would be like, you're doing great. You're doing great. Just if you could lose a few more pounds. And it's like, I have no idea where this weight will come from. Like I could cut my arm off. Maybe if I cut off a leg, (laughs) you should see my thighs. I can squat 300 pounds. Like maybe (laughs) if I cut that thigh, for sure, I will meet the criteria. I can make the equation work in my favor that I would be within the normal range of what a BMI should be. And so I think with my first pregnancy, I faced that with my doctor. The first real time that like my weight really was at the forefront of everything. And it was very weight centric in the sense that like, here I am eating what I should be eating, exercising every day almost. And it like still wasn't, it was never enough. And I remember, you know, friends would being like, oh my God, you're doing so much. And like, I, I didn't like one tenth of what you're doing. And I never got any sort of like crap for it. And I was like, oh, I get crap every time, <laughs> every time. And, you know, after a while, it kind of just becomes like, okay, I'm expecting this to be the conversation and mentally preparing myself for it. And then I had the baby and it was like, you know you should start thinking about eating a very low number of calories because you as a a shorter person don't require as much calorically (laughs) as the average height of someone of average height. Is this what your doctors were telling you? Yeah. And I was like, "Mm, that's weird, but okay. (laughs) And you know, I kind of just took it. And I remember calling one of my girlfriends who's also a dietitian. She was just like, flabbergasted because she was like are you okay like what (laughs) and I was like yeah I'm fine like because it was you know in the realm of all of it like big picture these are all conversations that I have had my entire life and so it was kind of like here's just another doctor saying this to me and then I found like the IE the haze the like weight neutral approach to health and it kind of like flipped my entire world And I was like, what the hell is, yeah, like, what is happening? And, you know, I really looked into, like, what is BMI? And, like, what does it mean for me? And, like, realizing, oh, it's not meant for me. (laughs) So here we are, our entire, you know, the medical industrial complex puts so much emphasis on BMI, even though the the use that it's being used for is not appropriate. (sighs) And so, yeah, and then I find myself, like, kind of, kind of in that space again with the second pregnancy, different doctor, completely different pregnancy. And I'm here again, dealing with, you know, you know, based on my weight, then I'm automatically at risk for being on the border of maybe doing, getting, contracting X, Y, and Z. And so it's like, you know, it's just being asked to like, hold your breath while also doing all this stuff because maybe this bad thing might happen. And it's, you know, it's this bad thing that I'm like doing to myself as opposed to like, there are other factors that contribute to getting, you know, gestational diabetes, getting preeclampsia, getting all the fun stuff that comes with pregnancy. But the main focus really is just how big my body is. 
So you said, you know, you're quote unquote doing this to yourself. Is the attitude in the medical community that by staying in a larger body, as if you have a choice about that, you are putting your baby at risk of preeclampsia, gestational diabetes, whereas a smaller woman who did develop those conditions be more of like, well, you know, it happens to some pregnant women. Here's how we treat it. Yeah. Like there's less of a, like the, like the responsibility of not getting it, not getting that diagnosis, I feel like is less. So the focus, if you're pregnant in a smaller body, just, you know, hearing feedback from friends, feedback from when I post about how annoying it is to be fat and pregnant and yeah. And, you know, just like not, not thin and pregnant basically. Yeah. So you, I'll link to it in the show notes. You made a post a couple of weeks ago um, specifically about the experience of being in a larger body and pregnant. And I think, I think it was the last line of your post. You said something about like, you can't help but wonder if going through this again is worth having another child. Yeah. And I, I mean, do you want to elaborate? Yeah. Um, Just like, do I want to put myself through this like emotional ringer? Being pregnant's hard already. I'm gonna mm-hmm. cry. <laughs> I'm like, you're doing all these things. You're like not sleeping, and you're not. Your body is doing things that you you can do everything you can, and some things just don't work out. Mm-hmm. You just get blamed. Yeah. For it. Oh, sorry. <laughs> and no, no, please. <laughs> but it's also like, you know, knowing that like I'm doing everything I can with what I have and hoping for the best. Because like, you know, I also know that like you can do everything quote unquote right. And something bad could still happen. Mm-hmm. And so, like, if you're worrying about, like, everything, then I feel like it just takes away from what being pregnant could be. I mean, it's awesome. You get, like, stretchy pants. What's, what's so fun about being pregnant? You get stretchy pants. You can, um, people hold the door for you. You know, you can, you can ask your significant other, your partner, your family to like bring you food. And if you decide in the moment that you get it, that it's gross, <laughs> they like don't hold it against you. <laughs> you know, like things would be like, well, I got it. So you got to eat it. And like, you're like, no, I'm not going to eat that. That smells like feet. Like I can't, I can't stomach that right now. Yeah. And so there's a lot of like positives. Like my hair is really shiny. My nails grow really fast. (laughs) You know, there's like fun stuff that comes with Mm -hmm. pregnancy. And I think that like, yeah, I think it just like takes away from it. And like, it was interesting. I posted that. I posted that post. There's so many moms who reached out and were like, I've had the same experience. And I think being pregnant in itself is kind of isolating. And so to hear that 
other moms have also experienced it, I think is really nice. You know, misery loves company. So, and, but like also heartbreaking is to hear like from followers who are in larger bodies who like DM'd me, reached out to just be like, this is one of my fears to be pregnant and put myself through that emotional trauma. Like, is it even worth it? Because I feel like that in itself would be, would need its own recovery, <laughs> right? Like you get the, what do you get? You get like six weeks, eight weeks to recover if you got a C-section, like just like just dropped your butthole onto the ground and <laughs> six weeks later, you should be like ready to go. Now you mentioned that after your first pregnancy, uh, you started to learn more about health every size. And um, as a health every size provider myself, I know that the very experience of weight stigma physiologically takes a toll on those who receive it. So you just described, you know, what you're feeling, you know, emotionally, the things that you felt you lost, or you never had, but we also can't ignore that going into your second pregnancy, whether you have high blood pressure or high blood glucose, we can't ignore that the stigma you've faced all your life because of this plays a role in some of that. What, what is your take as a, a health at every size informed dietitian about that as it relates to your body? I think it's, I think it's just taking everything with a grain of salt, right? So like in this pregnancy, I failed my first glucose test and then I passed the God awful three hour glucose test. Oh, jeez. It sucks. Okay. So the first one I was like, this is fine. I could drink I could drink this high C squeezy <laughs> thing, whatever. It's fine. And so I failed it and I knew I failed it. Like I knew, like just I don't know what it was. Like I just felt amped up and I was like, oh, I totally failed this test. Then I got it and I had failed it. And then so I went and took the three hour test. And I passed it, and I, my OB still asked that I see the dietitian. So I was like, okay, that's fine. Like, I could see a dietitian. Like, I'm a dietitian. Just talk to another dietitian. And I was then asked to, like, I got the script for the the monitor, the strips, the lancets, like, all this. I was like, what? This is a little bit more intense than I was thinking it was going to be. And then I had, this has been like, I think I'm going on like week six or week eight of like just monitoring. And, you know, I thought that, you know, okay, I'm going to like diligently monitor my blood glucose for the first week. So I can like prove that I don't have gestational diabetes, that I'm processing glucose appropriately. And the first week that I was doing it, you know, you test when you wake up after every meal and then right before you go to bed and like all that stuff. It like, I mean, it's not painful. It's like a rubber band snap if you've never had your blood tested by yourself, but it's just, it's uncomfortable and it's annoying to have to do, you know, after an hour after every meal and after doing it for a week, every day, you know, five times a day. I had all but two outside the normal range of acceptable blood glucose. 
and only two of them were outside of the range. Yeah. Yeah. So everything else was below, you know, you have to be less than 95, I think, milligrams per deciliter in the morning, and then less than 140 milligrams per deciliter after an hour after meal, and all but two. And so I was like, okay, so this should be fine. I feel like this is like anyone, Joe Schmo, who is testing their blood glucose, if they metabolize glucose appropriately, it will be like this. And I was then asked to do it again for another week. And I'm like, I'm, this is really annoying. This is, I just don't want to do this. If I don't have it diagnostically, why am I testing myself every, every freaking day? And so then when I met with my doctor, I, I was like, you know, why am I doing this? And I was met with like, well, because you're borderline to the borderline of getting the diagnosis. I was like, so will I take another three hour test? And he was like, no. And so I was like, okay. (laughs) I said, so diagnostically, I will not have this in my medical record that I have gestational diabetes. He's like, well, yeah. And so I was like, so am I going to meet with like an endocrinologist? Are we concerned with my pancreatic function? Because these are all things that are included when you have gestational diabetes. These are all things that get monitored to make sure that, you know, you and your baby are healthy, you know, with like how crazy the blood sugar spikes are, right? So like, will I need insulin? Am I monitoring for like any of these things? And it was like, well, no. And so I'm like, well, then what the heck am I doing? And so, yeah, like I have just been met with like a lot of resistance. And then ever since I asked, like essentially advocated for myself, like, what's the point of all this? It's become less like, okay, you need to monitor it every day and more so like just check it, you know, once in a while <laughs> here and there. And so I do that like two times a week, two, three times a week. I'll do like a day <laughs> of monitoring just to prove like everything I'm doing is fine. My metabolism of sugar is normal. <laughs> and yeah, and it's like, you know, what factors do I have? Here's what I'm getting curious about. You, I hate to use the word failed, but you know, the, your results on the first test were not in the range that the clinicians typically want to see, which is why we have the second test, right? And then you passed the second test, correct? Yeah. So why do we have a second test if we are just going to instruct women who didn't get the right results on the first test to behave as if they have gestational diabetes and do we do that if the woman is in a smaller body? Yeah, I don't know. I think <laughs> I, from what I've read, so you need, I think it's two out of the four of the three hour glucose tests to be higher than the normal acceptable range to be diagnosed with gestational diabetes. I had one, I think it was my fasting was slightly elevated and the other three were fine after I had the, the juice. And so I had the one. And I know from what I've read is that some clinicians will take the one reading as like enough to diagnose you with gestational diabetes, but the common practice is the two. And so my OB is just trying to be cautious 
but it's like for what like if i'm if i've proven for weeks now that my glucose numbers are normal then what's the difference you know but you know diagnostically i understand that like the more pregnant you become the more insulin resistance you get and so looking out for that but i'm like at 38 weeks and my blood glucose is fine i wake up with the normal glucose level and i know that like from talking to my dietitian the morning time is your highest like window of insulin resistance so that's like when you should have like you wake up with a high reading and then your first breakfast should be <sighs> comprised of a protein and a fat so that your reading will be lower and then x y and z but every morning my blood glucose is normal every morning my blood glucose after breakfast is normal unless i some you know occasionally have like a sugar bomb breakfast you know sometimes i just want to have a bowl of fruity pebbles (laughs) (laughs) you have that right uh i'm really curious about something can you go back to your first glucose test and, and tell me a little bit more about your mindset leading up to you taking that test so my first pregnancy passed the glucose test no problem I didn't really think anything of it. My OB at the time was like, just have breakfast, take your test. You know, you don't have to like fast or anything. And then I did that. I did the same thing for the second time. And I don't know, I just like was sitting there. I felt like anxious and like I could feel like my, it just felt funny or whatever. And then my reading came back that I had been outside the acceptable range and so I was like well so what I was curious about and I don't know if this was the case for you but it might be the case for other women is that if especially as you've described being in a larger body you feel like you have to prove that you are doing things to support your health and your baby's health more so than you know perhaps a smaller bodied woman would so if the stress of taking the test which is going to give us you know a diagnostic measure of your your health and your baby's health if the stress in and of itself becomes like so stressful that you internalize that and that stress in, in itself can raise blood sugar oh yeah, <laughs> so yeah. the experience of the test as a person in a larger body in that you want to pass the test you want to prove that you're you know doing everything right. You know, I wonder if that can influence the test. And I'm just kind of hypothesizing. I don't know if anybody's ever studied this. If they have, I will link it in the show notes, but I'm not sure that anybody ever has. So I was just curious about whether that influenced your experience at all. Maybe subconsciously, I wouldn't put it past, you know, my first experience and just life experience and realizing, you know, just navigating life in a not normal BMI body. (laughs) I mean, because the the experience of weight stigma to a person in a larger body is not most of the time conscious. I mean, or it's both, you know, but there are a lot of things going on in the background. Yeah. You're able to navigate all of this as a dietitian and and knowing what those numbers mean and knowing what pancreatic function is. What would you tell someone listening who either is currently pregnant in a larger body or is hoping to be pregnant and is very likely going to be in a larger body? What would you tell that person about navigating this kind of stuff? I would say to remember that all of these diagnoses, all of these numbers, everything you know that we're testing for, that you're testing for, whatever, are all 
part of the medical industrial complex. It's all insurance payouts and liability and all that stuff and has nothing to do with you as a person. Yeah. And you mentioned advocating for yourself, you know, when you're with the the doctors asking, you know, should you see an endocrinologist? I find that there's a balance between, this comes up with my clients a lot, a balance between advocating for yourself in a medical setting and taking care of yourself and protecting your space and your mental health, because even having that conversation is an undue burden that someone in a smaller body wouldn't have to have. So do you have any thoughts or advice on navigating that balance? I, you know, the trauma response is to be (laughs) overprepared. So I would say write everything down, right? Like you already know if you're going into it and your clinician is not a weight neutral clinician and not Hayes informed or aligned clinician, just to have all your questions written down because you get there and it's like, there's like that, like not like that white coat phobia or whatever, but like, Mm -hmm. just like, there's like, you just get amped up. Right. So you're like mentally, emotionally preparing yourself for like whatever insensitive thing someone's going to tell you and like you're pregnant. So you're like highly emotional, the hormones Mm -hmm. and like all that stuff. And like just writing it down, I think is really helpful. And if you have friends who have either gone through a similar experience or know yeah, just people you know, like, this is what I'm thinking of asking. Like, if you have a safe space to be like, these are the questions that I have. Do you think these questions are appropriate or, like, relevant to, like, what's going on? Just, like, as a sounding board. Because, like, you know, so I had asked, like, I had a list of questions that I wanted to ask. And my, I was telling my husband, he's like, I don't think you have to ask that specific question. <laughs> like, you just, like, you know, ask do you need to see an endocrinologist? Like, when am I getting that reference? And like, you know, I'm not like, which endocrinologist am I going to see? And like, I had a list of all the ones that I was like, well, maybe I'll see this one or this one or this one. And like, yeah, but that's just because my trauma response is to be overprepared. You know, you're so used to like taking on that burden of proof and like proving why your point is right or whatever in the situation. And so there's a level of preparedness that I would say you should have because even if, you know, you want to correct the space, even if you wish it could be better, you know, you're also dealing with like what it is right now, the, this is how it is Mm -hmm. kind of thing. And so learning how to balance wanting it to be different and dealing with the now is important. Did you have any desire to, especially going to your second pregnancy, to seek out a, a weight neutral provider or kind of no. also just talking about it is what it is? Yeah. It's, why, yeah. Why not? not? Really. Why not? I, well, one, it's COVID. So <laughs> I didn't really want, I you know, you don't have like that opportunity to like shop around mm-hmm. essentially. Mm-hmm. You know, I had a couple of girlfriends who like went to one provider and didn't like that provider and would go to a different one. And I don't think that like, 
I probably could have done that, but I think it just, you know, you just expose yourself more and more to people. <laughs> like, you know, this is like back in October, September, October, like last fall, and there wasn't a vaccine yet, and the numbers were still rising. And so you, I just really thought, like, I'm just going to minimize my exposure to people mm-hmm. because sure. I want to get coronavirus. <laughs> so, you know, I just went with who was recommended to me. And aside from the GDM experience, it's been great. <laughs> All right. Well, and you're, you're going to have a baby in your arms any day now. Uh, you also posted on another post that you sometimes feel pulled in two directions, one side to, you know, embrace whether it's body positivity or, you know, body neutrality and accept your body. But also you see how, life is easier for smaller bodies, pregnant or not. Yeah. And you, 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 you still feel that pull to make your body smaller so that life would be easier. And I mean, I think that in a nutshell is what I'm trying to hold space for. And I imagine the listeners uh, are also facing that struggle. What do you want to say there? You know, what can you elaborate on? Mm, I think normalizing that like, it's okay like it's it's more like just like you know there's some days you really like the way your hair is sitting and some days you don't yeah and you know our our knee jerk reaction if we're having a bad hair day is not to cut it all off <laughs> our knee jerk reaction is like you're having a bad hair day it's like well what can i do what can i give to my hair should i do a mask should I massage my scalp? Should I condition it a little bit extra tonight? You know, like, it's funny because we don't extend that level of care to our entire body. And I think that, like, for me, I think it's I think it's okay to be torn navigating those two spaces and recognizing, like, what is making me feel like this, right? So I'm not, and sometimes you just feel it. You can't help the way you feel. Sometimes you're just like, Ugh, I just don't want to have to deal with this anymore today. I don't want to have like one more thing on my plate, one more thing to worry about because of like something that I can't control really. And because this like, this metric that is so antiquated and so, problematic dictates that I deserve, you know, whatever X, Y, and Z, or that I am automatically labeled as I'm not doing enough. I'm lazy. I'm, you know, whatever. And it's like, well, that's someone else's idea of like what I am. And I know that like, I know that I'm not. And, and I know, like, I guess it's like, I know who I am. I know what makes me feel good. I know what I feel like when I'm, what I feel like is my healthiest feeling. And just knowing that that feeling will fade if I have that negative thought and recognizing that it's like, it's not forever. No, that's so, that's so good. So helpful. We were chatting a little bit before we started recording, because I I imagine a lot of women after delivering the baby with the cultural expectation to snap back, lose the baby weight, are are especially feeling that struggle you just 
described. And you said something about um, how sort of joining the tribe of women trying to get their body back sort of fills a need. I don't know if it would be like a need for community or validation. I'd love for you to talk about that a little bit more because I thought that was so insightful. Okay, so I think that when you get pregnant, for whatever reason, your body no longer is yours. You become the vessel. Mm -hmm. The vessel for the mess that's going on in your body. And so, like, when the baby is born and you are left there... There's almost like an emptiness. And I think that we try to fill that emptiness and with something, right? And I think that the the wellness space, while well-intentioned, is also like kind of super toxic, but it's familiar. And it's like, there's also other people who are trying to fill that space and you so want a sense of community that that satisfies it you know being with other people and you you just get into it and then you also internalize like that whole I need to snap back I want to bounce back I need to get my body back but it's also like recognizing you know now me post my first pregnancy realizing that there's nothing to get back because there's nothing you you haven't lost anything there's no loss there it's more so like you've birthed this body and you've also birthed this new person and so in there's like this disconnect where it's like you are not catering to this new person and you're catering to this person that's not there anymore And so I think it's important for new moms to get to know their post-baby body, get to know who they are, what they are, what they like, what they don't like, and, and just like reconnect or like connect with who you are now, right? Because like it changes you (laughs) being in that whole ass room with (laughs) 20 strangers (laughs) looking into the abyss that is your vagina like there's some you're a different person it's like you walk out of there like you know your arms are open your like whole body is out and you just like you're like I just made life (laughs) now what like come at me and I think that the fitness space like latches on to that insecurity of like who is this person this new this new you kind of thing and instead of like let's date this new you let's befriend let's care for let's moisturize let's condition let's you know show love on this new thing person it's like ew this unfamiliar you have like this ick and so you focus on like the toxicity of that weight-centered approach to post getting your baby back or your body back (laughs) baby's not going anywhere (laughs) 
So what I'm kind of hearing is, you know, in in your view, women are not turning inward to connect with their new self. And what is so common with wellness and weight loss is that if you succeed, likely temporarily, you get all this praise. Look what you did. You look so amazing. You are taking such good care of yourself. So then it all comes in from the outside. And for a person who does not have that sense of interconnection with her new self as a mother, or who who was very connected with her old self as a not mother with a different body and wants to go back there, you know, either bringing her body back to what it was or getting that external validation of look at you taking care of yourself as if weight loss equates to health. And, you know, it kind of fills that need, but is it sustainable? You know, pretty much all of my work, even, you know, the, when I work with parents on, on their children's dietary patterns, I'm always bringing them back to, it's not about what you think he should eat. We got to work on what he wants, what he knows, you know, what feels right in his body. And we have to help him cultivate that sense. And it's not about what you think. So it's all about the intrinsic motivation. And I really see a parallel there in, you know, probably in adulthood on the whole, but certainly for moms navigating this. And I, I always, I don't want this show to be like a, like, you should just, you should just look inward. <laughs> like, it's <laughs> Yeah. Any, not, just, <laughs> any sentence that starts with just yeah just like just, 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 just stop <laughs> wanting external validation and look mm-hmm. inward like it's not a switch that we all turn on it probably takes therapy <laughs> and you know um looking at your relationship with food looking at your relationship with your body but i think we have to talk about it because yeah if we don't then we're just gonna follow the lead of the wellness industry that our happiness lies over there with that laxative tea or whatever. And, and, uh, and it doesn't, yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, laxative tea's really been on my mind lately. I don't know why. Uh, or that, that green juice or this, you know, you know, this particular workout plan or, you know. And, you know, I mean, it, it's tough to navigate because maybe working out does fill that internal need that you, you know, to, to move your body and, you know, get that, that, that expression that you can get through exercise, but it's really hard to untangle that from the external, you know, changing my body through this hard workout versus how this makes me feel, you know. Yeah. Like punishing yourself. Like you've already done nine months and you have to do more because like, you know, you see famous people, you know, getting praised for their bounce back body. Like I saw Emrata just gave birth like 11 days ago and she posted a picture of herself like in a one buttoned sleeping <laughs> shirt and like washboard abs and like super tall and like you know, whatever. And it's, you know, that's her body. And I think recognizing that like, that's her body. This is your body and recognizing the intention, like, if we're focusing on like, you know, motivation, like, why am I doing this? Is this because it makes me feel good? Is this because, you know, whatever, like, what's the end goal? Like, I want to feel usually, you know, you talk to your clients, and it's like, what's the end goal? It's like, I want to feel good in my body. I want to feel good in what I'm wearing. I want to feel whatever. And 
how so often we tie the feeling to a look. But what you look like is not what you're feeling. (laughs) And it's like, why, why are we like, why are we programmed like this? Like, why is this the way that we associate that feeling? And I think now more than ever, just like the whole, you know, body diversity is so much more prevalent now. And I think recognizing that how toxic it's been to uphold body should look one way, mm-hmm. especially in a pandemic, especially in like all this social injustice unrest <laughs> and navigating how do you go about with body issues you know with the pandemic we don't go out as much and you can't go to the gym you have to like just make do with what you have and sometimes food becomes the comfort that you need because we're all experiencing this communal trauma of living through a pandemic and it's like normalizing holding space creating space where you're just being and being okay with just being in your body and then you know taking it a step further and focusing on like okay what feelings can I make myself feel (laughs) with what I have and you know it's like (sighs) that post you know bounce back body it's so I hate it I hate it so much. Like all my friends, you know, like I just tell them like, you don't have, there's, there's no bounce. Like you don't have to bounce back because what are you bouncing back to? Like that person before you had a baby is a wholly different person. You know, how often have you had a conversation with your friends who have children that like, what would you be doing? You know, what did you do when you didn't have kids? (laughs) Yeah. And like that life is very different. Yeah. And, and and that life didn't have your baby. Yeah. And like like that life is very different. That life is very it it's so experientially is very different. So why is it so hard for us to untangle separate like my body that body and my body now? Yeah. With baby. And I don't want to put all of the pressure on women like it's a social construct designed to keep us from achieving our power yeah <laughs> like so it's not like, like we do it to ourselves to a degree but we didn't put ourselves here no, no, no. i know you're not blaming women it's, it's just, i think like, you know we didn't wake up thinking you know what today and forevermore i'm just gonna hate my body Right. I'm just going to hate on myself. Like we learned this. We, yeah. we have been indoctrinated yeah. to aspire to be someone else. And so from that time, we are trying to fit someone else's mold as opposed to cultivating the, the body we in, inhabit. <laughs> and, you know, without sounding like woo-woo, which I love. All things we will. You know, it's like you just there's recognizing, recognizing diet culture, recognizing the things that we were told about our body versus things that we didn't like. You know, there's there's a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, do you like chocolate or vanilla ice cream? It's 
very polarizing. Yeah. <laughs> it's like <laughs> you you like one and you're okay with the other, but yeah. it's perfect. Like it's a personal preference. The body type that you have, the like, is it okay? Like, do I like my legs or do I not like my legs? Is learned. Like, mm. there's a level of like shame because my legs don't look like this accepted version of legs. <laughs> and so I think going down, there's a book that I love that I can't think of the name right now. Because <laughs> We'll put it in my the show notes. Brain. <laughs> my because you're brain. about to have a baby? Could that be? <laughs> and there's something kicking me. I don't know. There's, there's a book, but it like goes through like, you know, how did I, what are my issues with my body? And then where did they come from? And it goes through like the color of your teeth, like the level of whiteness that is socially acceptable today. It was not the level of whiteness that was socially acceptable like 30 years ago. It's like an unnatural level of like almost blue (laughs) that like is the like accepted, like this is what white Mm. teeth should look like. And like, you know, armpit hair or body hair in general and how much that has shifted with the pandemic <laughs> and like can't like no one's gonna see me i haven't shaved my legs in like years but i feel like <laughs> yeah. like whatever the people who love me will love me mm-hmm. leg hair and all yeah and i think learning how where all those thoughts came from on top of recognizing like any shame thrown at me for whatever i have is a reflection of that person Mm -hmm. and like has nothing to do with me at all. Yeah. But I think we could all stand just to remind ourselves that probably on a daily basis, but you know, (laughs) is I mean, this has been such a a great conversation. I have learned so much from you as I always do. Is there anything you want to close out on? If you see my Instagram, I hope it's still there. (laughs) I was recently attempted to be hacked, but yeah, I think, you know what, live your life. Don't try to untangle all that stuff and live in the mess, live in the mess because then you really like, it's your mess and not the mess that society has given you. And then you find the things that you like and learn to love those things. And for all the pregnant moms out there, just like try to enjoy, you know, just try to enjoy it. Like, oh make sure you have all your notes, especially <laughs> if you're in a larger body, all your notes, all your questions, all your ducks in a row, because, you know, it's just one less thing you have to worry about. And recognizing that your body, no matter what you do, sometimes things happen. Sometimes you fail tests. Sometimes you become salt sensitive and you have to um, omit everything that has sodium in it for six weeks. (laughs) And and that happens to anyone and everyone. And like, as much as the diagnostic tests, the providers of the diagnostic tests may have bias towards you about recognizing that those tests, that getting the diagnosis is, completely like luck of the draw because and genetic and like so many factors feed into it 
and you can only control so much. And yeah. 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 And at the end of the day, we're, we're just trying to get our babies into our arms, right? Yeah. Any of us would do anything, you know? At the end of the day, we're all little blips on a rock that's <laughs> floating through space. And here we are every day paying bills. Yeah. And waking up in the middle of the night with our crying babies. <laughs> oh, I know. Oh, my God. Yes. Well, good luck, I think is the right word, with your birth. Oh. And I'm really excited to learn when that baby comes. And hey, enjoy it. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is the last few weeks before this child doesn't complain about what I what I feed. (laughs) Remember when they lived inside of us and they were completely, you know, happy with their diet of amniotic fluid. (laughs) They weren't picky. No food on the floor. Yeah. Oh man. (laughs) Well, thank you again, Clara. This has been really, really great. And do you want to share your hopefully reactivated Instagram handle? Yeah, follow me at your dietitian BFF. Yes. And I... even if you are not a dietitian, you will learn a ton. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And thank best you. of luck. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning into this interview with Clara. If weight stigma has influenced your pregnancies, I hope you'll come hang out in the Messy Intersection podcast community. You'll find the link to join in the show notes, or you can search for the Messy Intersection podcast community in your Facebook app. I feel compelled to share that at one point, Clara mentioned someone named Emrata and that person's postpartum body photos, and I did not know who that person was, so maybe you didn't either. Um, Emrata is a model named Emily Rodakowski, and she is very famous, and maybe you all did know who she was, and it is only me who needs to Google all of Clara's pop culture references, but uh, just in case, there you have it. Also, the book that Clara mentioned is called Beyond Beautiful, A Practical Guide to Being Happy, Confident, and You in a Looks-Obsessed World by Anushka Rees. I haven't read it, but I did just order it, and I am very much looking forward to chapters including Why I Am Just Doing This For Myself is BS, How Healthy Eating Became a Status Symbol, and the importance of wearing what you like, no matter your body image. And of course, there's one chapter called, Who Decided Women Should Be Hairless Anyway? So I will link to that in the show notes if you want to check it out. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next show, embrace the mess! Embrace the mess!